good morning again. You get me twice this morning. Pray for Jackson, who called in sick. <laughs> we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1090. And as is our custom, we'll be doing some Q&R at the end. And you can go to slido.com and uh, type in RevCDA in the prompt and uh, anonymously ask questions if you'd like. And we'll take a look at those a little bit later. Uh, as it has been mentioned a few times, um, we are in the Lenten season. So if you're unfamiliar, Lent is the six weeks prior to Easter every year on the church calendar. And it is a season of preparation, of reflection, of repentance, uh, of getting your heart ready for the celebration of Easter, of Easter Sunday. And one of the things traditionally that happens during the Lenten season is uh, Christians who have not yet been baptized get ready for baptism. Uh, and so Spencer just mentioned it, but I would love to encourage you, if you are a Christian here this morning and you have never, uh, in obedience to Jesus, been baptized in water, I would love to talk to you about that um, because I think that's something that uh, is a... Um, is a call on all of us who follow Christ to step out in obedience and faithfulness and proclaim our allegiance to Jesus publicly through water baptism. So if that's you, come talk to me or, or, or Brian, and we would love to get you signed up and prepared for that this Easter. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness towards us, the, um, just the mercy and the grace that you extend to us. We thank you for our creation, our preservation, all of the blessings of our life, the means of grace that you've given to us to, to know you, to experience your love. God, I pray for everyone in this room this morning that they would recognize the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, you are um, by definition everywhere all the time. Um, but we, in our distraction, in our doubt, in our sin, we lose sight of you. And I just pray that this morning would be an opportunity to reset our hearts, to hear your voice, feel your presence and know your love for us. And whatever it is that we're bringing into this space, that we would just offer it up to you. Um, pray that as we um, talk through some just difficult stuff this morning, that we would be encouraged to know that you are sovereign over the affairs of this world uh, and that you have conquered death. In Jesus' name, amen. The season of Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which was last Wednesday. Um, we, uh, someday, dream of mine would be to have a meeting space and have an Ash Wednesday service. If you're familiar with Ash Wednesday, it is a service of reflection on death. Super fun. Uh, but part of the service involves uh, imprinting with, uh, uh, with ashes the shape of a cross on your forehead. And as part of that, um, ceremony, the, the person that's doing that says, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Again, not, not really hallmark material, uh, but biblical material, right? The Christian perspective on death is unique in the world. In, in many of the Eastern faiths of the world, death is considered a welcome release from the pain of living. If you're pursuing nirvana, you, you are recognizing that there is suffering in this world and to be released from the suffering and to enter into the nothingness of nirvana, death is a blessing. In our secular world, which is very much religious, even if, if secular people don't want to think that, 
Death is just an inevitable reality. It's just the end of an ultimately purposeless existence. And if you talk to secular people or, or listen to secular thinkers, they, they try to make meaning of the world, recognizing that ultimately there is no meaning because we all die and one day the sun will explode and the universe will flicker to non-existence and everything will end. But in the Christian faith, death is something different. Death is our greatest enemy. And the good news of the gospel is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has actually conquered death. This morning, we're going to take a look at this message to the church at Smyrna. And this message from Jesus is a meditation on death and the posture that Jesus intends for us to have toward it. So let's get started in verse eight. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Smyrna is the modern city of Izmir, Turkey. It is the only one of the seven cities in Revelation that is still in existence. All the others are in ruins. In the first century, about 200,000 people lived in Smyrna. Um, On the coins of Smyrna, they had their city motto. And the motto was, first in Asia in beauty and size. So they they were big and they were beautiful and they were proud of it. Smyrna had a deep history of allegiance to Rome. Smyrna had bid out 10 other cities in the area to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius. Tiberius was the Caesar when Jesus was crucified. And and they they got into a bidding war with a bunch of other cities and they won. And so they were allowed to build a temple to Tiberius to worship him after he died. They built a temple to Roma, who was the official goddess of the Roman Empire. Smyrna was a very patriotic city. The name Smyrna means myrrh, and if you're familiar with myrrh, myrrh is a spice that is used to prepare bodies for burial. And just like all the letters to the seven churches, Jesus opens this one with a proclamation about who he is, and he says two things. He says, first, that he is the first and the last. This is something that we've talked about because it's part of the the vision that John had in chapter one, but it's intended to Tell the Smyrnaeans that Jesus is sovereign over the events of history. Whatever is about to happen, I know about it and I'm ultimately in authority over it. That's the message he wants to tell them. And then he says, he was dead, but he came to life. Remember, I died, but death could not hold me. This is important for us. We've talked about this many times, but... um, Good theology matters, right? Jesus is the God-man. He is the second member of the eternal trinity. He is both fully divine and fully human. And we find in our own experience and throughout history that human beings are enslaved to sin. They are separated from life with God and they are bound to death. Throughout the scriptures, death is personified as a powerful being that holds captives. In Job 28, we read, where then does wisdom come from and where is understanding located? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Death, Abaddon and death say, we have heard news of it with our ears. This passage in Job identifies Abaddon, which put a pin in that, we'll come back to him in quite a few chapters later in Revelation, and death as a being. In Psalm 49, like sheep, they are headed for Sheol. Death will shepherd them. The personification of death. The mission of Jesus throughout scripture is envisioned as rescuing captives and destroying the power of death. In Ephesians 4, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. 
And in Colossians 2, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So our salvation can be explained and illustrated in a variety of different ways, but one way is that salvation is a hostage rescue mission played out inside of death itself. The divine son has the power to save us, but he does not have a way to get inside of death because he is by definition immortal. So one of the reasons Jesus assumes a human nature is so that he is able to die and simultaneously strike at death from the inside and rescue those that are held captive there. Think about any heist movie you've ever seen. If they're going to infiltrate the, uh, the headquarters, they're going to you know, find uniforms that match the other employees. They're going to get a key card. Maybe they're going to find some executive's fingerprints and like use that, the scotch tape thing to get the fingerprint so they can do it on the key scanner. They've got to sneak in. And once they're on the inside, they're going to destroy the enemy. My favorite piece of cinema that illustrates this aspect of salvation is from the movie Men in Black. I've, said, I've, I've, I've shared this illustration before, but who, who knows Men in Black? It's an old movie. Okay, some, some of you, some of the young people are like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Will Smith before he was canceled. Um, <laughs> he and Tommy Lee Jones are uh, secret agents that fight aliens. And at the very end of the movie, there is the the, the big boss alien shows up and he's this giant cockroach and they're having this battle and they're losing and the giant cockroach alien takes Tommy Lee Smith's gun and he grabs it with his mouth and he swallows it and they're getting beat up and and Tommy Lee Jones has had enough of that and uh, he gets this look in his eye and Will Smith goes, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm gonna go get my gun back. And he goes to the cockroach and he starts insulting him. He starts, he starts talking about his mom, who is, an, who is a bug, and saying all these mean things. And he finally just goes, eat me! And the cockroach does it. He just reaches down and in one big gulp just swallows Tommy Lee Jones. And Will Smith is freaking out and he's fighting and he's losing and all this stuff is happening. And a few minutes later, you hear this whine of a giant energy weapon. And then boom, the bug explodes from the inside because Tommy Lee Jones got his gun back. <laughs> this is the gospel. <laughs> Christ has defeated the power of death by being unable to be held by it. And because the Christian is in Christ, we are given the same power. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? So then death becomes to us this power that is alive and well in the present, but has no power in the future. It has no sting left. So this is, the, this is the introduction to the letter to Smyrna. This is what Jesus wants them to internalize about himself. He is in authority over the events of the world, and he has defeated death. And then he says in verse 9, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We find out that the church at Smyrna is poor and is experiencing persecution. It's likely that their allegiance to Jesus has cost them employment, has resulted in violence being done against them. But Jesus says something paradoxical. He says, but you really are rich. Because Jesus measures riches differently. His kingdom doesn't work like the world that we are used to. Famously, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the way that Jesus measures riches. The Smyrnaeans are rich in God's economy, even though things are going badly for them in several ways. In our um, relational elders class that we teach every year, one of the concepts that we talk about pretty early on is this idea of living in an upside down world. And an example that is used in the curriculum is to imagine a world in which we all live in upside down houses. Houses that are built with the light fixtures in the floor, with doors, with, uh, with headers on the bottom that you have to step over to go through the doorway. That might sound really weird, but if we were a people that lived in that world and generation of, generations of us were born into that world, after a while, it would be totally normal. There would be a whole industry that would spring up for how to protect your light fixtures from being kicked, right? There would be like um, aids sold to seniors to help them like navigate the big step over the door. It would just be normal. And then somebody comes along and goes, you know what? Your houses are upside down, right? And everyone would be like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. This is the way the world is. But this is exactly what Jesus does when he comes along. He, he, he comes and he looks out at the world and he says, hey, you know, your houses are upside down. And the Smyrnaeans, they've got it right. They are actually the rich ones, even though they're being afflicted and persecuted and experiencing poverty because they are the ones that are devoted to Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus says that they are being slandered by people who say that they are Jews but are actually working for Satan. How are we supposed to understand this? There's a variety of theories, but I think the best way to understand this is that Jesus is talking about a population of non-Christian, ethnically Jewish people living in Smyrna. Tom Schreiner says, the Jews played a significant role in city life. We have inscriptional evidence of a gift given to the city by a Jewish high priest. So there's this idea that there's this large group of Jewish people in Smyrna, and they are basically at war with the Christians. We have other records of the difficult relationship between Christians and Jews in this period of the New Testament and even into the future. Jesus even says in John 8, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my words. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus uses similar language here to say that the unbelieving Jews are following Satan. In Acts 13, we read the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. This happened in the city of Antioch. And this makes sense. The the Christian movement is co-opting the Jewish faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, your heritage is Jewish. Up until the destruction of the temple in the year 70, Christianity was just considered another denomination of Judaism. And so the Christian movement co-ops the Jewish faith and then invites unclean Gentiles, non-Jews, to participate in this version of worship to Yahweh. And so this creates significant friction between these two people groups, the people that follow Jesus and the people that have rejected him. Paul writes about this extensively in Romans 9 through 11, In verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What Paul says is it's, it's not your birth that makes you part of Israel, it's your faith in Christ. In Galatians, he says something similar. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Abraham's seed, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, and Abraham's seed is a ethnic, genealogical idea 
of where the Israelite people came from. And Paul says, even if you aren't ethnically tied to Israel by faith in Christ, you become part of the family. And so the Christians throughout the world are saying that the Jewish Messiah has come and they've drastically broadened what it means to be a faithful follower of the one true God. We get some indication here, and we know from other records that the Jewish citizens of Smyrna are most likely reporting Christians to the Roman Empire and accusing them of not appropriately worshiping the emperor. Greg Beale writes, it was almost impossible to have a share in the city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Pressure on Christians to conform to such participation would have increased during Domitian's reign. This is the time, play, time period we're in now, in the 90s. Those refusing to participate we see as politically disloyal and unpatriotic and would be arrested and punished according to Roman law. Robert Mounts concurs. He says, antagonism against believers would lead Jews to become informers for the Roman overlords. In a city like Smyrna with its strong ties to Rome, it would be fairly simple. It would be a fairly simple matter to incite the authorities into action. And this seems to be what's playing out in Smyrna. The Christian community is a small minority. They're dwarfed by largely pagan Romans and a large Jewish population. They have this religious uh, dispute with the Jewish population, and the Jewish population is making use of the Roman government to persecute them. Maybe for some of you this morning, this whole conversation is a little uncomfortable. There was just some ads in the Super Bowl about anti-Semitism, right? About, about people who hate Jews. And this feels kind of like that, doesn't it? And so we need to drill down on that a little bit. The first thing to remember here is that John, writing Revelation, is Jewish. Also, Jesus is Jewish. Many times throughout history, however, the Jewish people have been persecuted and the Christian scriptures have been used as an excuse to do that. But notice, not in this text or in the entire Bible, are Christians told to return this kind of abuse with slandering of the Jewish people or hating the Jewish people or mistreating the Jewish people? That is nowhere in our commission as Christians. And while we can look back through time and see people who in the name of Christ did horrible things to Jewish people, we are never given the charge to do that. In fact, we are told just the opposite. Paul says in Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul says, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation for my people who refuse to believe. And so while there are many voices, there, there are many voices throughout history and they're rising up in our culture today who sometime, somehow want to peg the Jewish people for, for atrocities and conspiracies and all kinds of crazy stuff, that is irresponsible and inappropriate and sinful. And we as Christians should have no participation in it. Anti-Semitism, just like discrimination and racism against any people group, is profoundly anti-Christian. Schreiner, again, says, These words are not written to justify hatred of the Jews, nor is there any notion that Jews themselves should be mistreated. John's point is that believers in Christ are the true people of God, and he wants them to be comforted by such assurance. For many of us, though, th th this, is a, this is a difficult passage to find application in, right? Because and, and th this comes up a lot, will come up, continue to come up in this book. As we talk about persecution, we kind of look around and go like, I, I don't really feel that. Maybe in, there's some pockets here and there, definitely in places around the world. 
But what, do I, what am I supposed to do about this? How am I supposed to think about this? I think we need to recognize, though, that there is an analogy between two groups of people that claim to worship the same God. Right? This is, this is the, the Jewish and the Christian debate in the first century is, is worship of Yahweh. And how do you worship Yahweh? And what does your life look like to worship Yahweh? And there's this large group of people that says, this is the way we do it. And this small minority of people that says, no, the way of Jesus looks different. And it causes strife. I think we can see an analogy in our country. Because there is a major difference in America between people that are committed to following Christ and those that claim the identity of Christian but really are just conservative Americans. 2023 data last year from Barna, 4% of Americans can be identified by their category as integrated disciples, which means people who actually hold to and practice a biblical worldview. 4% of Americans. In a country where 69% of Americans claim to be Christians, the vast majority of those people use the name but really don't follow Jesus in any significant way. And I know that, that many of us, uh, as we, and I said I was going to talk about politics a little bit throughout this book because we're in this season, but um, many of us would look out in the world and, and wish that our political climate reflected our values more. That we see politicians uh, who by their character and their words and, and the policies that they want to bring forward, they just don't line up with what our understanding of who Jesus is would be. And I think it's helpful to recognize that if only 4% of us really care about what Jesus thinks in this country, we're not moving that needle. And, and that's okay. George Barna says about this, as things stand today, biblical theism is much closer to extinction in America than it is to influencing the soul of the nation. The current incidence of adults with a biblical worldview is the lowest since I began measuring it in the early 1990s. And we can bemoan that. That's, that's a shame, right? But also, remember, Jesus is sovereign over history. This is the world that we've been invited into, and maybe our role to play is as a small minority that is showing a different way forward in a world that is largely abandoned Christ. Well, so while I would not argue that we are a persecuted minority, the number of people in this country that are deeply committed to not just believing in God or going to church, but radically practicing the way of Jesus in every area of their lives is incredibly small. And when persecution comes to America... Maybe that'll be next year. Maybe that'll be in 200 years. Nobody knows. But I think, it, I think that will happen. There will be plenty of people that say that they are following God, that work with the civil authorities to slander and oppress men and women who refuse to give their allegiance to the empire. And we may never see that personally, but I am fairly confident that it will happen before the return of Christ. So, that's the good news this morning. <laughs> Jesus is like, good job, Smyrna. <laughs> the next section of these messages is critique. The church is told where they're excelling and then what they need to work on. Smyrna is one of the two churches in the list that Jesus has no critique for. This church refuses to compromise with the world and all Jesus has for them is praise. So then he talks about the way forward. Verse 10, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. 
Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Something that God is always telling us. We are afraid all the time. And some of us would say, I'm not afraid of anything. I bet you are. <laughs> give me enough time and we'll work, we'll work it out together. How do we mitigate fear? By, by knowledge, by experience, by skill. But another way to get rid of fear is by trust. Jesus is asking the Smyrnaeans to trust that he will be true to his character. Remember, he is the first and the last. He is ultimately in control of the situation and he has conquered death. Why does this matter? Because Jesus says a test is coming from the devil, probably through Jewish informants to the Roman government, but this is actually ordained by Christ. Beale says again, Jesus employs the devil's efforts for the purpose of strengthening his people through these tests. Jesus is sovereign over the events of history and the work of his enemy is leveraged for his glory and the good of his people. This is, we don't have time to go deeply into it, but this is the story of the book of Job, if you've ever read, read it. So what does Jesus say is going to happen? Some of them will be thrown in prison. Schreiner says their imprisonment anticipates a forthcoming execution or possible release since prison in the ancient world was not itself the punishment suffered for doing wrong, but the detention center for those awaiting trial. Nobody in the Roman Empire got a sentence of five years in prison or life in prison. If you went to prison, it was because they were going to kill you soon and they needed to keep you somewhere until then. And Jesus says, you're going to be there for 10 days. And then everybody starts fighting about what that means. <laughs> I'll give you two options. Uh, Greg Beale thinks that this is a reference to Jan Daniel chapter one. If you're familiar with Daniel chapter one, Daniel and his friends are deported from Israel to Babylon and they are put in the service of the king. And they're basically, they go to Babylonian school. And they're, they're, they're trained in the Babylonian arts, in the Babylonian language and literature. And they're also given a Babylonian diet. And the Babylonian diet goes against kosher food laws. So Daniel and his friends say, like, we don't want to eat this food because it goes against the way that we've been told to worship our God. And he says, give us 10 days to prove to you that we do not need this diet. And the, the head of the the, the school's like, okay, I'll give you 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends look better than any of the other um, students. And so Beale thinks that this is a callback to that 10 days and that Jesus is telling the Smyrnaeans that they are the people of God living in exile, being tested with faithfulness to Yahweh in the face of false worship and worldly compromise. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it would be um, Bob Mounts and Tom Schreiner, they think that 10 days is better understood as just a short amount of time. Like if you are, you're talking about something and you go like, you know, in a week or so, I'll probably do that. Like you, you don't have a number of days in mind. You've just kind of got a, a general window, but not a long time, a short time. However, Peter uses similar language in 1 Peter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be alert, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Thanks, Peter. Just a little while. Tom Schreiner says, the Peter means the entire period before Jesus' future revelation and return. This expression in revelation should be interpreted in the same way. I tend to think that's probably right, that the Smyrnaeans um, aren't to anticipate a 10 literal day prison sentence, but should anticipate a period of trial for themselves for the foreseeable future. So what do they have to look forward to? Some of them are going to die. That's what they have to look forward to. 
but they shouldn't fear because their reward for patiently enduring death is resurrection. The resurrection power of Christ has been given to his people and we have no reason to fear death. Sometimes again, we struggle here because the kind of oppression that that would say like, don't worry, you're gonna get thrown in prison and you're gonna die, like that's pretty foreign to us. But as of 2021, statistically, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith every day. 12 churches or other Christian buildings are attacked every day around the world. 12 Christians are unjustly imprisoned every day. And 309 million Christians live in situations that have either very high or extreme levels of persecution. There are a variety of organizations that exist to document this. The reality is is that followers of Jesus are the most greatly persecuted population in the world. Jesus' words here are meant to be a comfort for the church in Smyrna. And they continue to be read by Christians around the world today who are facing persecution for their faith as a comfort. Don't be afraid. I'm in control and death itself cannot defeat you. Just like all the letters, Jesus ends with a reward. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Just like we saw in Ephesus, this call goes out to all the churches, whether you're in Ephesus or Philadelphia or Smyrna, this is for you. Even if you're in Coeur d'Alene, we can't afford to ignore this word to Smyrna, even if we don't see the kind of persecution that they did. Jesus tells us to pay attention, to internalize the message. That's what it means to have ears to hear. Don't just listen, but hear. You, you know what it's like to hear the sound waves of someone talking, but not listen to what they're saying? Maybe, maybe a spouse, uh, hypothetically. That probably doesn't happen. <laughs> not in my house. Um, it's different when you stop and you turn and you look them in the eye and you listen to what they're saying, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Listen to what I'm saying. To be a conqueror is to have a military victory. And we like that because we want to be winners in everything that we do. We want to be winners. We want our team or our political party or our special group to win We're taught by our leaders that we must win and the consequences of losing are going to be disastrous. So how does Jesus invite us to win? How does he invite us to conquer? By dying. The promise isn't that the conqueror won't be harmed by the first death. This is the one that we all see and grieve and think, oh, that's terrible. And it is but the conqueror won't be harmed by the second death. This is a term that is coming from the end of the book, Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Heaven and earth fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God will defeat his enemies. Even death itself will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. This is what it means to lose. These are the losers. The first death the one where our body is killed and our enemies seem to rejoice over us and implement their false worship, that's not losing. That's the path to victory. Why? Because that was Jesus' path to victory. 
Luke 11 says, when a strong man fully armed guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, overpowers is the same word as conquers, he takes from him all his weapons and he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Jesus is talking about Satan. Jesus comes to the strong man, to Satan's house, and he conquers him and takes his weapons away. The author of Hebrews reflects on this and says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, he became human, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Satan no longer has the power of death. Death still exists, but it can't harm you. Jesus has conquered it through his own death on the cross. 1 John 5 says, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Jesus conquers death on our behalf and we become conquerors not by being strong according to the world, not by winning arguments or policy debates or elections or God forbid actual wars, but by faith, by trust in and allegiance to Jesus. And Christians have known this to be true since the very beginning of the church. And in 197, Tertullian of Carthage wrote, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. He's writing to his government there. What Tertullian understood is that by maintaining faith in Christ, following Jesus in our love for those even who are our enemies, and by even losing in the eyes of the world, we win. And nothing has changed. Especially if you you turn down the seriousness, if you recognize that we're not being threatened with imprisonment today, if you apply this to us, we are a group of people that used to have immense cultural superiority in this country. And we are rapidly losing it. And Jesus is sovereign over these events and he has defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. We have no reason to fear. As we close this morning, I want to tell you a story. It's likely that when this letter was delivered to the church at Smyrna, we talked about this a little bit, nobody had Bibles. A reader would get up and read probably the whole book in one sitting. We, we are not doing that. But everybody's ears would perk up when they got to the section on Smyrna. And there was most likely a young man in his mid-20s in that crowd who heard Jesus' words from the messenger who was reading this letter. About 20 years later, that young man would become the bishop, the the lead pastor of Smyrna. His name is Polycarp. He served Smyrna for 40 years as their bishop. And in 155 AD, when Polycarp was 86 years old, He was arrested for being a Christian. You can read the full story. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. But he invited his captors into his home. He made them a meal and he prayed for them for two hours. And then he let them arrest him. They brought him to the stadium in Smyrna that was filled with a bloodthirsty crowd And the Roman authorities there begged him, what harm is it to say, Lord Caesar, and to offer a sacrifice and so forth and to be saved? I am not about to do what you advise me, Polycarp said. Have respect for your age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? The Roman magistrate threatened to unleash wild beasts on him. And when he found out that the wild beasts were actually at the other side of town and couldn't be uh, grabbed, then he threatened to burn him alive. 
And Polycarp said, you threaten with fire that burns for a while and after a little time is extinguished for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring about what you wish. The call was made that Polycarp would be burned at the stake. Members of the crowd rushed to get wood for a pyre and they led Polycarp up to it. They intended to nail him to a post so he couldn't run away. And he said, leave me like this for he who allows me to endure the fire will allow me to remain in the fire without moving, even without the security from your nails. And Polycarp prayed once more The men lit the fire and it blazed up around Polycarp's body without burning him. The witnesses describe it not like burning flesh, but like bread baking or like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. For we perceived also an intense fragrance like the scent of incense or some other precious spice. After this, someone ordered the executioner to just go up and stab Polycarp with a dagger And when he did this, Polycarp's blood flowed out and put out the fire. At the end of the letter, such is the account of the blessed Polycarp, who, with those from Philadelphia, was the twelfth one martyred in Smyrna. By his endurance, he overcame the unjust magistrate and so received the crown of immortality. Rejoicing greatly with the apostles and all the righteous, he glorious he glorifies the Almighty God and Father, and he blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, and shipmaster of our bodies, and shepherd of the universal church throughout the world. This is the account of a man who took Jesus' words seriously. And by whose faith and whose testimony we can look at and and grieve and mourn. And and if you you want to read the letter, um, the the full account of his martyrdom, there, there are other Christians in Smyrna and they grieve and they mourn for the loss of their bishop but the people that are inspired to follow Jesus more faithfully, the men and women, the onlookers who recognize, oh, there's something different about this Christian thing. I want to know more. The witness that Polycarp has, and by extension, the witness that we have when we decide to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of trials and affliction multiplies over and over and over again. Let's do some Q&R. Ten-day period. Are there any points that reference the predominant meaning of the number 10 throughout the scriptures? Yeah, not really. Not that I found. Um, I think the big question there is if, if you take 10... Uh, as a, a number that has some kind of consistent symbolic meaning. Um, there's a couple ways to figure out what that consistent symbolic meaning is. But then when you apply it to the situation in Smyrna, it, it's hard to make it fit. So uh, most of what I read, they, they didn't use that kind of numerology um, argument there. It's a good question, though. If anybody knows of anything different, I'd love to hear about it. And then good old Sarah is out of town today and she says hi. <laughs> that's, that's very nice. Hmm. Okay. We're going to take communion. Um, the communion table is our weekly reminder that we are a people that follow a man who lost. And that by losing, he became the conqueror. Now the cross, the cross isn't a victory without the resurrection, right? Jesus rose from the dead. This is where we're headed in Lent to the celebration on Easter. Paul says, if the dead don't rise, we are, of all people, are the most to be pitied. But 
Jesus doesn't command us to follow a weekly practice celebrating his resurrection. He commands us to follow a weekly practice remembering his death. I think that's because identifying with Jesus in his death doesn't come as naturally as identifying with him in his resurrection. If everything that we did and said as Christians was about, you know, moving up and to the right, that feels really good. Every Sunday's a party. Jesus rose from the dead. Yes and amen, that's true. But there's something that shapes our character when we are reminded over and over and over again that Jesus died on the cross. That the way that he conquered was the world's way of defeat. And that that sort of thing shapes our character in a different way. I say this frequently, but the communion table is a way to renew our allegiance to our Savior, our crucified Savior. So if, if you've given your allegiance to Jesus, if you've put your trust in Christ this morning, I would invite you in a few moments to come and be identified with him by taking the bread, his broken body, and the cup, his blood shed into your own body, recognizing that you are in Christ this morning and that who you are is meant to mirror who he is. There's juice and wine for the dictates of your conscience. I would invite you to spend some time in reflection. You take communion when you're ready. As we sing together, you're welcome to sit or stand. You can come kneel at the prayer rugs. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.